Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. I want you to turn to the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke. 22nd verse, 22nd chapter rather, is where you want to be. When I was uh, learning how to, how to put together sermons and how to preach, I had good people that showed me how to do that, and believe me, it doesn't come natural, not with me anyway. And I had good and godly people that showed me how to do that, and um, they always said, make sure that you have an introduction into your message. I don't have one today, but since Dr. Harrison is not here and I don't see Professor Beckdahl in the crowd, I'm going to skip the introduction. Let's get straight to the text, and it is... Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus speaking to one of his men, Simon, we know him as Simon Peter, the prince of the apostles. He's speaking specifically to Simon, and this is shortly before the Garden of Gethsemane, which is shortly before the cross. And he says to him, Simon, Simon, verse 31, chapter 22 of Luke, Simon, Simon, behold, an announcement. Satan, the adversary, the enemy of our souls, the destroyer, has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now what you need to know is that Satan has already destroyed one of Jesus' men. Judas has already fallen prey. He's already become the betrayer. And now he's after another one, Simon Peter. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you've turned again, you will strengthen your brothers. So here we see Jesus praying again, don't we? We've seen Jesus praying alone. We've seen Jesus Praying together with others, we've seen Jesus praying on a number of occasions. And I've challenged you to pray like Jesus, even to, to figure out a time, some point in the future when you can do what he did and pray the whole night long. You can do that. But here we see him praying again. Only this time, as he prays for this one individual, he's not praying for things. A lot of our prayer life is made up of praying for things. He's not praying for financial security for Simon Peter. He's not praying for family issues for this friend of his. He's not even praying for health even. But he's praying for a soul. He's praying for a soul. And if I were putting a title to this, it would be praying for souls. Now let's examine this soul that Jesus is praying for. Let's look closely. Let's examine Simon Peter's soul. First, we know from what Jesus is saying here about how he frames his prayer and why that Simon Peter didn't know himself. He didn't even know himself. Look at verse 33. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Simon Peter doesn't know that he's a failure. He doesn't know that his his faith is wrecked already. He doesn't know anything. If you look in verse 32 about his weaknesses, 
I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But 33, he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. That's what Simon Peter said when Jesus said, I've been praying for your soul. He said, don't you know I won't abandon you? I'm ready to go to prison for you. I'm ready to die for you. But within a few short hours, he would show that he was deathly afraid of being arrested in prison. And within a few short hours, he would demonstrate beyond all doubt, Simon Peter would, that he was afraid to die for Jesus. He would be even afraid to speak up for Jesus in the, in the face of a little girl. He would deny that he even knew Jesus, that he was even from the same part of the country Jesus hailed from. And so when he says, I'm ready to go to prison and death for you, he would run from both of those things. He didn't know himself. He didn't know himself. And, he, and he, didn't, he didn't know what he was capable of doing either. Look in verse 34. Because the exchange that follows between Jesus and Simon Peter, that follows Jesus' announcement, I've been praying for your soul. He says in verse 34, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will crow today, will not crow today before you've denied me three times that you even know me. This is a soul that didn't even know what he was capable of. That he would not deny Christ and betray him one time like Judas, but he would do it three times. You know that scenario. While Jesus is being tortured and tormented and humiliated inside the hall of justice, right outside, Jesus gathers with a bunch of people that hate Christ around a fire to warm themselves in the cool of the night. And he's welcomed around that fire because he denies Christ like they do. And at just the moment that the doors of the hall of justice open and they bring out the badly beaten Christ, he's bloodied now and there's spit dripping from his face. He's been humiliated and mocked, and as he comes through the door and the light hits him, that's the moment that Simon Peter's eyes lock with Christ's, and he's betrayed him. And he goes out and he finds a place somewhere in the dark, and he weeps uncontrollably for the person that he really is. But at the moment, Jesus is saying, I've been praying for your soul, Simon, he doesn't even know the depth of his own evil. He doesn't know himself, and he doesn't know how bad he can be and what he's capable of. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart, our heart, your heart, my heart, the human heart, is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately wicked. It is desperately sick to the point that nobody can know how bad it is. That's true for all of us. We may fancy an image of ourselves, but in the quietest moments of reflection, we have to admit that we're capable of some pretty nasty stuff. We can be very treacherous people. 
Simon Peter didn't know that about his own soul. He didn't know the depth of his own evil. And he didn't know how vulnerable he was. Look at what Jesus says in 31. Simon, behold, Satan, the prince of evil, has demanded of me permission to jack you up, to ruin you, to destroy you. And it's only me saying no and me praying for you that's kept him from doing his worst in your life. This man does not know how vulnerable he is. He doesn't know that already he's a slave to Satan. We toss that word slave around. It's an ugly part of our national history, isn't it? Somebody has called it our original sin as a nation. You have any idea what it would be like to live as a slave? Of course we don't. I've told you before that there's a series of recordings that I, that I own that I cannot get through. It's recordings of people that in their younger years were slaves, American slaves in the South. And in their 80s and 90s, somebody had the genius to record their experience. And the way they talk about what they lived through it makes you sick. It chills you at the same time. And you listen to their voices, and you say, my God, what was done to those people? Can you imagine the terror that you would feel as a slave to know that, that your family could be violated at any time in the worst of ways, that another human being could take your baby and sell or trade them. And you couldn't do anything. Can you imagine the terror of that? Can you imagine the rage that you would feel when it finally happened? And again, it would be impotent rage because you couldn't do anything. That's being a slave. And this man does not know that he's a slave to Satan. He doesn't know how vulnerable he is. He doesn't know what danger he's in. He doesn't know that he's like Cain, the first child ever born. When that child was born, his mother had to have held him in her arms and said, this is the child of promise because the Lord has said, your seed will crush Satan's head. And she had to have thought, this is the one that's going to set us free. She did not know that she was holding the first murderer. But before he murders his brother, he's thinking about it. His jealousy has driven him to that conclusion, I will kill my brother. And the Lord appears to him with a tip. And he says, don't you know, Cain, that Satan is crouching at your door? And if you don't master it, he's going to destroy you. Sin crouches at the door. Satan is right there alongside it. And this man doesn't know how vulnerable he is. That is the soul that Jesus is praying for. This is a broken soul. But Simon Peter is not peculiar. What, what Simon Peter is experiencing here, this level of brokenness and not knowing himself and not knowing the depth of what he's capable of doing, 
That's not peculiar to him. You see, he is not in the Bible because he is remarkable. He is in the Bible because he isn't remarkable. He's just like all of us. Now think of those three things that we just noticed about his soul. That he doesn't know himself. That he doesn't know the depth of his own evil. That he, that he doesn't know how vulnerable he is to the enemy of his soul. You think about those things. That is the tragedy of being lost. That is the tragedy of being without Christ. And that, in fact, is the very definition of what it means to be lost and without Christ. You know, there's a, a sadness that attends sometimes to our walk with Christ. Once we do come to know Him, we have bad memories. Our memory plays tricks on us. And we can forget sometimes what it was like before Christ. We should always remember what it's like to be without Christ. That thought should never be too terribly far from our consciousness. That without Christ, I would be lost. And that before Christ, I wasn't much. John Newton, we know him as the one who wrote the words, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We, we know he's the author, and most people know that he spent half his life as a slave trader, one who bought and sold human beings, and that he was involved in every putrid kind of behavior and violation against people that you can imagine and should not imagine in his role as a slave trader if it was possible for a degraded human being to do it, John Newton had done it. While we know that story about him and that he came to Christ and writes that amazing song, what a lot of people don't know was that for a time he himself paid for some of his ugliness by being captured and was himself sold into slavery. And for a year plus, he was human garbage. He was a slave. And he worked as a slave. After he was released from that ugliness of slavery, then he comes to Christ and he goes back to England and his life is transformed and he spends the second half doing incredible good because he was motivated by the Spirit of God and changed and transformed but when he got his own place back in England, he commissioned a plaque to be made that he fastened to the mantle of his fireplace so that every day, every night at least, he would sit in front of that thing to warm and cook. And he would read the plaque that reminded him that he was also once a slave. In fact, the way it reads is from the Old Testament. He said, the word says, and it reminds him of a bondage that was worse than the sugar plantation. It says, remember thou wast once a bondman, a slave, in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. He never forgot that he was once a slave. 
We should never forget what Christ has done for us. We should never forget that we were once slaves. We should never forget that we have been transformed by the blood of Christ that we celebrated at this table at great cost. He redeemed us. And Paul would say it this way, that he, he, he transferred us. He, he caused our, our citizenship to be transferred. He transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous Son. We should never forget that. We should never forget that. Yesterday I officiated at a wedding in Visalia. And a lady, a friend that I had not seen this couple in a long, long time, friends, long past, they, we chatted a little bit and, and I was just catching up with them and they have some relatives in their family that are horrible human beings. I don't know any other way to put it. You're a better Christian than I am, and you could think of a more tactful way. But they're terrible people, they're relatives. And they mooch off them, and they sponge off them, and this is now decades long. And so I ask, and they said, well, they're living with us again. And I said, you guys, <laughs> how long? And she said, and, and her husband agreed in tears, they told me, well, sometime back, she said, the Lord showed me what we would be without Him. And it's not a pretty picture. And it's worse than our relatives. And that's why we've taken them back in. We should never forget. Never forget that thou wast once a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. But this man is a slave. Simon Peter is a slave to sin and Satan and rebellion. And so Jesus prays for him. He prays for his soul. So, so what? So how, how do you and I pray for the soul of somebody else? How do we do that? Well, look at Jesus' prayer for Simon Peter. Look at what it does. Look at what he says. It's prophetic, really, isn't it? What he says... Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when once you have turned again, that you would strengthen your brothers. And Jesus ends up telling him, and by the way, I have the insight that before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times that you even know me. Jesus is prophetic there, isn't he? And he reveals that Judas will not be the only betrayer that night. Again, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He's betrayed by Simon Peter. He's betrayed really by all of them that he called his closest. And Jesus sees Simon's failure in the future before it ever takes place. Now, what we learn from that is this. And what you need, and I need to know about how to go about praying for another soul is partly this. You see, we need to understand that without Christ, everybody you know is headed for failure. It's kind of interesting as you break Jesus' words down, and I did this week. I went back and looked at how he would have said it in the original language. Satan has demanded permission. Simon, an individual... 
Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But when he's talking to this individual, the word you is plural, which means Simon, Satan has demanded to sift all of you all like wheat. And I prayed for all of you. And the reason is because without Christ, everybody you know is headed for failure and ruin. There is an enemy of the soul, and he has an agenda. It is to kill and steal and destroy, and he is very upfront about his agenda. And he will use every tool he can. He will use good things and bad things to kill and steal and destroy. He'll use dope, but he'll use your family too. He'll use alcohol, but he'll use your ambition. He'll use lust and anger and greed, but he'll use your desire to excel as well. He'll even use your family if he can get it over on you because he wants to kill and steal and destroy, and without Christ, he gets his way first time every time. But there's something else we need to know if we would pray for the soul of another, and that is that with Christ, we cannot fail. And that's what Jesus says as he tells him, he gives him the insight, I've been praying for your soul, Simon, and specifically, I've been praying that your faith, which is your relationship, the most important relationship you have involves your faith. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest and most important thing that we know that God has ever said, he tells them the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Your relationship, your faith with God is the greatest thing in your life. It is primary. And he says, I have prayed that your faith would not fail. With Christ, we cannot fail, see? We will not fail. We will not fail. We may not fail. We cannot fail with Christ. If your faith does not fail, listen to me, you will not fail. If your relationship with Jesus is intact and strong and it doesn't fail, there is no way in the world you can fail. Get that right, get it strong, and everything else falls in place. With Christ, we can't fail. With Christ, we will turn around. He says, I prayed that once you have turned, I don't use the word repent anymore because it's a word that has been freighted and weighed down with all kinds of negatives. Repent or perish. That's what they used to preach. Turn or burn. But the word simply means to turn. And so when Jesus is saying, Simon, I prayed that when you turn around, and you will turn around, when you repent, and you will repent, when you course correct, think of it this way. You're driving down the road, and you've got a passenger who thinks they're a better driver than you. Anybody had that experience? I don't want to get into the whole spouse thing, but you know what I'm talking about. You're driving down the road, and she or he, but I think a preponderance of the time it's she, I knew it. 
But they say to you, turn. What are they telling you to do? They're turning you to cha- telling you to change directions, aren't they? That's repent. And with Christ, we do change. With Christ, we do reorient. With Christ, we're going the wrong way, we turn the right way. Not one time, not just in an altar, not just in a crisis experience that we call salvation, but all the time, we turn. Just this last week, Walter and I were working with a bunch of kids, young boxers. And I've got a certain method that I use when I'm training them. And Walter was watching what I was doing, and he pulled me aside. And this is wisdom. You don't sit in front of everybody, but you pull somebody aside. You, you, you point out somebody's fault in front of somebody, and they will get their back up. But pull them aside. He pulled me aside. He said, Coach, think of it this way. There's a better way. And I thought about it when I got home, and I said, you know what? I was doing it wrong. Of course, correct. We can change. God does change us. Not just one time, but he can change us all the time. See? And Jesus does that. With Christ, we will turn around. On big things, on small things, we can course correct with Christ. And then there's one more thing you need to know about those souls you're praying for. Not only when they come to Christ will they not fail. Not only with Christ can they turn around. But with Christ, we can make an eternal difference. Simon Peter, I prayed for you that when you turn around and things change and you change from the inside out, from your core out, I'm praying that you will, and I know you will, strengthen your brothers and sisters that are weaker than you and that need you. One day Jesus was approached, who is my neighbor and he, and he revealed with a very clever story, it's not just the people that live near you. It's not just the people you know. It's not even just the people you like or get along with. Your neighbor is anybody who needs you. That's your neighbor. And he says, ends up saying, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. Well, I don't always like myself, but I can't remember a day that I haven't taken care of myself. Most days I get up and wash and dress and try and look presentable and feed myself because I love myself. And he says, do the same thing with everybody that needs you. Help them with what they need. We can make an eternal difference. And, and, and Jesus says that we can strengthen one another, those that need us. Those that need us. Paul says that we're to comfort those with the same comfort that we receive. You ever wonder why you go through some of the experiences that you do? It's so that someday, someday, God can call on you and say, remember, and you will, now go help them, and you will. And you'll do it better than anybody else could do it. See, nothing's lost with Christ. Everything is redeemed, even the ugly things he buys back and uses. He buys back and uses. There's a man, and I want to close with this. He had what I, I would think was a fairly interesting line of work. He was a creative guy for the Hallmark greeting card company. His name is Gordon McKinsey. And along with his work at the Hallmark, uh, he was also the designated guy that would go out and do creativity workshops. 
primarily in elementary schools. It was a promo for Hallmark, but he would go out and he would, he would talk about creativity with kids and help them discover their creativity because look at the greeting card business. It's all about that. And Gordon said that over the years that he did that, a number of times, these creativity workshops for elementary kids, that he noticed something. In every workshop, he would open by up front asking the kids, how many artists are there in the room? And he noticed a pattern of responses that he said over 30 years never varied. When he would ask that of a first grade class, how many artists are there in the room? The entire class waved their arms like maniacs. I'm an artist! I'm an artist! In the second grade, about half the kids raised their hands. Tracking where this is going? In the third grade, he'd get about 10 out of 30. And by the time he got to the sixth grade, only one or two kids would tentatively and very self-consciously raise their hands. Now, what was happening? What is happening? All the schools he went to, from his perspective, he said, seemed to be involved in the suppression of creative genius. They were knocking the creativity out of the kids. They weren't doing it on purpose. But society's goal, think about it, is to make us every day appear less foolish. That is why when you're on a crowded street and you trip and fall, the first thing you do is look around to see if anybody noticed. Your leg could be shattered and you're caring who saw me fall. Society's goal is to keep us, make us not look foolish or less foolish. Now, as Gordon said, from the cradle to the grave, the pressure is on. Be normal. I tell you this story because after his research, he came to this conclusion. I want to read what he wrote in his report. There was a time, perhaps when you were very young, when you had at least a fleeting notion of your own genius and were just waiting for some authority figure to come along and validate it for you, but none ever came. Sad, isn't it? There are people all around us that are waiting for what you've got. They're waiting for you to validate them with just a kind word. But the greatest validation would be if you could begin to pray for their soul. That you could begin to pray for their soul, that they would be set free. And that the things that you enjoy in Christ, that they would know. That the Lord would give them and deal with them the same generous way He's dealt with us. And that to me seems only fair. There are people that are just waiting. It begins with a prayer for their soul.
I challenge you this week. Find somebody, one person, and begin to pray for their soul. Because until Christ, they are a slave. Until Christ, there is some ugliness in there that they're not even aware they're capable of. And before Christ, they're in bondage. But after Christ, they cannot fail. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.